This is the Lake Ridge Faith and Culture Podcast with our series, God Rules. Women want more rights, more access to abortion, more freedom, not less. Hell is knowing your truth and lacking the courage to live it. I don't care. I have lots of things I disagree with about the Bible. Why are we doing even a series on the Ten Commandments? The law was always meant to communicate God's character and God's truth and the reality of how God made the world. An articulation of our purpose, what it means to be human according to God's intent. Here's what happens when you balk at structure, balk at God's guidelines and boundaries that he's posted. It's not good what takes its place. So when God gives us these instructions, basically it, it, it implies you're a bunch of lying, fornicating, self-worshiping yeah. louts, you know. We shouldn't think about them as arbitrary rules, but we should think about them as God showing us the way to live fulfilling, long-lasting life in the world. We believe the enemy is after your mind and heart, and as shepherds, we're jumping into the fray. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the conversation. All right. Well, it's great to be back together today. The usual suspects are all gathered here in the room. We got Kyle Wisdom. Good to be back. We got Van Mentor. Been here since last time. (laughs) We got Keith Lowry. Van needs to get alive. (laughs) And then uh, myself, Ben Lowry. So we're starting a brand new series together. We finished our first principle series. If you haven't gone and listened to that series, you can find it um, at any of your podcast stream, whatever you're listening to this on, you could find the other episodes from our first principle series. We're launching right into this new series on the Ten Commandments. And so what I'd like to do here at the start, guys, I'd like to hear from each of you. What's your favorite commandment? Mm. Uh, I think I'm supposed to say all of them, I guess. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> what about what about this? What's your favorite commandment to break? <laughs> Man, not so fast. Um Probably yeah, they, remember the Sabbath day, probably. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's, This yeah. notion of resting Ouch. is hard Ouch. to, mm-hmm. hard to um, do sometimes. So I, I think you're going to find some Christians wondering, why are we doing even a, a series on the Ten Commandments? Isn't that Old Testament? Isn't that the law? Haven't Christians been freed from the law? So what gives? Why? why let's talk just a bit about um, the pertinence of the of a talk on the Ten Commandments. So I think the perception of freedom from the law that Christians have rightfully taken from the New Testament has been maybe misapplied or overapplied in the sense that Jesus's point in freeing us from the law was not to free us from the truth that the law was meant to bring us. So we are free from the law in the sense that the law is not the method by which we are justified. It is not the way in which we are saved. But we are still bound to the law in the sense that the law was always meant to communicate God's character and God's truth and the reality of how God made the world. So I like to talk about them a little bit like house rules. So um, when I lived in my parents' house, obeying the house rules was not the way that I became my parents' child. There was another method for that, right? But once I was my parents' child, to live within the house correctly meant obeying those rules. Mm-hmm. I think it's a it's a, a framework that God gave us, um, and it's not something we should view that's just Old Testament. I mean, it's something Jesus went back to when you see him preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and he, he gives deeper insight as to what God's intention was for this and what he, he desires of us and how we... I go about living, so I think it's um, it's a good point. It's very helpful. Yeah, we uh, see it um, recapitulated in the New Testament, both through Jesus' teaching and through the epistles. Um, you know, Paul, for instance, at the end of Romans, lists out a huge chunk of the Ten Commandments as necessary for um, the, the 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 fulfillment of what it means to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Um, the Ten Commandments help us to understand what's really inside those two great commandments. Yeah, in a sense, it's uh, an articulation of um, our purpose in some ways. 
what it means to be human yeah according to god's intent right for us to be human and um you know somewhere along the way maybe in my 40s i was reading the 10 commandments one day and all of a sudden i thought well this is actually really embarrassing I mean, it's it's embarrassing because of what it implies God thinks about us. I mean, you give people instructions according to what your perception of their inclinations are. I don't tell my six-year-old to, you know, refrain from smoking cigars because he's not inclined to smoke cigars. Um, but so when God gives us these instructions— Basically, it, it it implies you're a bunch of lying, fornicating, self-worshipping yeah. louts, you know, and so it is a little embarrassing in the sense that it it suggests something about our human character. I think it's also the case um, that just like our first principles, we talked about these being uh, the framework of reality. We we have what we have in the Ten Commandments is a recipe for uh, living fruitful lives in the world. In fact, one of the Ten Commandments gives this promise, you know, honor your father and mother that it may go well with you in the land. Um, you know, this is a... I, I think when we when we talk about the Ten Commandments, we shouldn't think about them as arbitrary rules, but we should think about them as God showing us the way to live fulfilling, um, long-lasting life in the world. Don't break—like, it's it's kind of like these are the this is the moral law and we also have natural laws like gravity don't jump off tall buildings it's kind of yeah. the same as saying don't murder your neighbors right mm -hmm. um if you do th either of those things life will go very bad for you yeah you see what i'm saying well and there's a reason that jesus affirms these commandments in the new testament and make sure that we understand that these are not simply just sort of rules to check off the boxes for. Mm -hmm. But these are things that are meant to point us in particular directions. So when he's expounding on these things in the Sermon on the Mount, he's making sure they understand, listen, it's not just don't murder your neighbor, but this is meant to point you in a particular direction. So if you don't murder your neighbor, how ought you to relate to your neighbor? What ought that to tell you about who you are, who your neighbor is, and how you're supposed to relate to each other. So they're meant to be sort of foundational pillars that kick us off towards uh, what we should be about as well. Right. Not just a no, but also implying a yes. One of the things we'll look at in the course of this series as we, as we go through the Ten Commandments, we're going to look at the other side of the coin. So we've got the thou shalt nots and the thou shalt's coin side of the coin, but then on the other side of that— You've got the the side of virtue, where you know Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, um, then you know you shall not enter the kingdom. His, I think, the point being, the Spirit comes and writes God's law upon our heart, and so we can move beyond "Thou shalt not kill" to "Thou shalt love and and value and protect life." So there's more than just okay, let's. Let's rub up against the line of what we're not allowed to do, but actually running toward God's perfect will that's revealed to us by the Spirit as He convicts us and, and illuminates His Word, you know. And I think this also stems from a misunderstanding of maybe the context as well of the Ten Commandments. I think people sort of—they remember that Moses walks down the mountain with the Ten Commandments and is all huffy and puffy and angry about all these things <laughs> that God wants to say no, no, no about. But when you look at the introduction of these things in Exodus, the first thing that God mentions is the fact that this is all coming out of his saving efforts for his people. Right. He says, I have delivered you from Egypt. I have brought you out of the house of slavery. This is my gift to you because I have saved you for myself. And so I think always putting God's commands within the context of he's already saved, he's already delivered, he's already brought us into a new community and a new relationship with him. I think completely changes the way we look at those rules. We need to look at the preface to the law a, a little bit closer as we as we jump into the series. We want to look at what we call the preface to the law. It's found right before the very first commandment. By the way, if you're going along with this, we're we're in the Exodus 20 giving of the law, um, and it's probably the most well known, uh, well rehearsed giving of the law in the Old Testament. But, but this preface to the law is important because we establish a couple of things right here at the onset. I've been kind of looking over John Calvin's exposition of the moral law and the Ten Commandments myself, just sort of getting my, getting my thoughts together for our conversation. And 
there are worse guys certainly to help you help color your thoughts for a conversation like this, I'm sure. But um, one of the things John Calvin highlights in, in his own exposition of this stuff is that what we have in the preface is both um, God sort of establishing his own authority to govern our lives, govern the lives of his people, and issue decrees and commands, our own, therefore, uh, responsibility to obey and submit to his authority in these things, but then also the context of that relationship being one of deliverance and freedom, that he has set us free. This is all coming at you right now because I've set you free from the the, the land of Egypt and the house of bondage. If we fast forward to the New Testament, one of the cool things we see is that Christians end up with the same kind of story. Um, we, we also have been set free from the bondage of slavery, not just to sin, but to pagan gods and spirits and powers of the air. We're going to get to this. Um, our, our church is going to study Colossians coming up, and so we're going to see this you know, up close and personal in the book of Colossians, this idea that we also have been delivered from a house of bondage. Um, and from slavery. And so that redemption, God's authority, and the freedom that comes with that, I think, are up close and personal whenever we're talking about laws and obedience to God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, um, you know, to Keith's comment earlier about it being somewhat embarrassing looking at it because God, it, it tells us something about what God sees in us and what we're prone to do. Um, I've heard it said, and I believe it to be true, that you know when you're raising your children, uh, it's important to set boundaries and enforce discipline because they, even though they may um, balk at the discipline when you have to enact it, they actually want it because it makes them feel secure and they know that they're safe within those boundaries, right? Um. I see the Ten Commandments and, and beyond, the, the spirit of those commandments that Jesus points to in the New Testament and, and other passages uh, where we see that um, commented on um, is, is doing that to us as believers. It, it provides a structure that causes us to, um, even though the Lord has to prune us and, and, and do a work in us sometimes to turn our attention and our affections towards the things that he's called us to, um, in, in removing sin or activity, sinful activity, whatever that may be, out of our lives as we're being sanctified, uh, it's a good thing because without that structure, I think what you find in Romans 1, look, you look at that, and, and it's almost as Paul is saying, here's what happens when you balk at structure, balk at, at God's guidelines and boundaries that he's posted. You find almost every commandment being broken within that, chap that chapter. It's, so if you ignore that, it's not good what what takes its place, mm -hmm. and so uh, I think that in that sense we can view this as it, it's freedom to embrace it. It's healthy for us mm -hmm. to look at yeah. this and abide by it and allow the Spirit to do His work in us because of it. I was talking with Kyle recently about um, Kyle. You and I were talking about some different things going on in the world around us, and and we, we were talking about the difference between obedience and self mastery. Mm -hmm. And I think I think there's some that's a relevant subject. Van, because you're bringing up this whole concept of there's freedom in obedience, there's freedom in simply following the law that God gave you. That that isn't a burden um, in the same way that uh, you know being tasked with self mastery would be a burden. Humans haven't been given the chore of self mastery, and I think even Christians need to get this when it comes to our own sanctification. We're not tasked with self mastery; we're actually tasked with obedience. And there's a difference between self-mastery, which also sort of leans into self-determination, self-actualizations, you know. Um, we're actually tasked with obedience, with conforming our will to the expectation that God has of us and to His design in our lives. So we see this overlap, I guess, between sort of first principles and, and God's law. We can lean into God's design for the universe and for ourselves and say, okay, I'm just going to align myself with what God says is just and right and good. And it, it exposes the lie that I think is sort of a cultural myth now, which is that all authority must be bad authority. That order that's imposed must be an imposition or an oppression. Mm -hmm. um, 
that God would be able to say in the same breath, I took you out of the house of Egypt where you were slaves, now bringing you into my house where there will also be order and rules and things you have to do, but that will be a good order. That will be a place for you to flourish. Yeah, I think uh, apart from Christ, this is how the world, individuals that, that I've talked to at times, view the Word of God. And so it, it's, um, in their mind, there's a checklist, If this whole thing about self-mastery. If I, I, can, I can force myself to, to do these things, and, and maybe in their minds they think somehow that sets me on, on uh, solid ground before God. Uh, but what you find is that outward conformity. For example, I always say to people, um, when we talk about, the, the work of the Spirit and sanctifying us and changing us. You know, you could take a lost person that says, you know, and they've heard somebody say, you know, profanity is wrong. It's bad. You shouldn't be doing that. Well, I could clean my act up and just stop cussing. Uh, and that may stick. It may last. It may be very short-lived because it's not Spirit-induced. It's just something I'm trying to do on my own apart from the Spirit, you see. And so because... um that's, that, that's the big difference I see. We're not yeah. talking outward conformity. We're talking about something produced by the Spirit of God when we yeah. come to Christ. So this is funny, Van, to your point. There was a, um, a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon that I read this morning. I think not only am I studying John Calvin, this I'm, is also, the second Calvin. <laughs> I'm also studying Calvin and Hobbes. So I'm, I'm very much um, Calvined out similar, right now. Similar thing. Yeah, 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 very similar um, insights, Spiritual actually. depths. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway... So there, there's this hilarious comic strip. I'm sure all our listeners have heard of Calvin and Hobbes. It's a little boy named Calvin and his friend, a pet tiger named Hobbes, who's, I think, actually a stuffed tiger, but he takes on this real persona of an actual character within the cartoon series. And so he's a, he's a t- giant tiger named Hobbes and this little boy named Calvin. Well, Calvin, he's got a vendetta against Susie. So Susie's a recurrent character in these cartoons, and Susie will show up periodically. And Calvin doesn't care for Susie at all, right? And so in the beginning of one of these cartoons, here's Calvin, and he's saying, I'm going to cover her face in one slushy snowball. And he's kind of devious in his look in his eyes, you know. And Hobbes, the, the tiger, is standing over beside him, and he says, you know, some philosophies say that true um, happiness comes from a life of virtue. And so Calvin thinks about this, and he drops the snowball, and the next few panes of the cartoon are Calvin racing around doing all of these good deeds, cleaning his room, helping his mom set the table, you know, shoveling snow for his dad, yada, yada, yada. And he, he comes to the end of this, you know, several hours of, doing, of living a life of virtue, you know, and uh, there's this just look of blank expression on his face. And he gets angry again in the next pain. He races off. The very next pain in the cartoon is Calvin in the field, laughing hysterically. Obviously, he's found happiness, but there's Susie lying face down in the snow <laughs> with a giant <laughs> snowball in the back of her head. And then Calvin says, someday I'm going to write my own philosophy book. Mm-hmm. And Hobbes says, um, virtue needs cheaper thrills. Mm-hmm. And so, Van, to your point, we can, we can kind of muster up enough willpower to do some good things from time to time, but the, at the end of the day, a life of virtue only only comes with the transforming power of the Spirit and the gospel in your life, which is why, for, for a Christian, the law not, no longer condemns, but is written upon our hearts so that we might have the character of Christ, who was the fulfillment of the law himself. I think um, you'll notice that the rejection of this structure we're talking about in the Ten Commandments and what God's intent for, for them are uh, is this phrase that has been pretty popular over the past couple of years where people, in defending a, a, a position or a mindset that, that they want to run with, is uh, they call it speaking your own truth. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's exactly um, the destructive nature of what I think I see in Romans 1 every time I read through that chapter. Um, speaking your own truth will get you into a worse position because God's going to hand you over if if you ignore him and um he's patient with us but uh you you get calloused and he's going to keep handing you over and you find that it's just more and more depravity that comes about as a result of that we used to have a term for speaking your own truth it was lying <laughs> um but 
but but we've we've come to view the truth as so completely up to the individual, the whims of it's, one's yeah, appetites. It's been dressed up, so right. that's more acceptable to hear somebody say, you know, I'm speaking my own truth. Well, that sounds like a virtue, right? But it's not. It's it's truth as determined by you, apart from God. So then we've come really back to this idea of authority. Mm-hmm. Um, where where would you guys? I mean, this may be an obvious question, but I'd like to allow the conversation to blossom here on this topic for a second. Where would you guys say the authority uh, to to govern one's life? What who has the authority at life's command center today in our modern world? Is it God? Does do we as a society view God as having ultimate authority, or does that authority to govern our lives? rest somewhere else. It seems pretty obvious to me that we have well, we may perhaps have some pagan deities that we uh that we worship or at least they show up in our Marvel movies currently. Um I it seems to me the the greater deity we have in in our current culture is self, the 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 individual person. Um and you see this really I think most clearly in just the way we talk about self. As though it's this um, completely unaccountable, free uh, inner life that has to be affirmed at every turn and all of its actions if it's motivated by the inner self, right? So you'll hear stuff like, um, well, this gives me, this satisfies me or this makes me fulfilled. And that's a rationale for action, even though that wouldn't have been a good argument you know, in, in, in times gone by for any action, even if it makes you feel good, like that doesn't matter. Was it good? And I think the commandments butt up against that very harshly because they're saying things like, regardless of how you feel about it, there are some things you should and shouldn't do. But I would say the self. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. I think um, I'm trying to connect some dots here from this whole conversation. <clears throat> I do think that the self, we we live in a time in which the self is the center of our measure of um, happiness. And, you know, our, our, our satisfaction with our lives in Western culture right now is a function of whether our deepest inclinations are affirmed by the larger community. Um, I think this question of, you know, Van raised this question of, you know, we, we can follow these rules, but uh we can't do it in our own power um i think that's exactly right but i think the reason for that is is that we're made to love and we're inevitably going to pursue that which we love and so until the things we love are transformed um then we need uh supporting structure to continue to pursue those things that we love and so um unless you love you know I think it was David, maybe it was David, in Psalm 119, talked repeatedly about loving the law. Uh, he loves the law. And when you get to the point where you love God's law, then um, you, you follow it of your own accord. Until you get to the point where you love God's law, you, there's transformation that needs to take place and maybe even consequences for for disobedience. And so I think the issue of our current time where we've made ourselves, we put ourselves on the throne um, of the universe in some cases, um, I think that's um, indicative of the fact that <clears throat> we love ourselves more than anything else. And that's why it's so important for everyone to affirm us uh, in whatever inclination or appetite that we have. And um, it is a it is an example of extreme misdirected love. Yeah. Um, and, and so the question, the presupposition that underlies our thinking about this in the culture, I think, is um, will we find satisfaction primarily in satisfying ourselves and attaining our own pleasure, or, will we f- or are we really designed in such a way where our satisfaction comes from something else? Mm. And the, the lie that it pervades in the culture is that uh, only through affirming your darkest inclinations do you find uh, happiness in life and success. And this is where this whole 
well, people are triggered and they have my tr- their own truth and you know they you know we we're affirming every possible perversity in the lives of other people. That all comes from this notion that whatever it is, my deepest darkest proclivities have to be affirmed or or I'm belittled in some way and my life is ruined. Uh, but in reality, we may be made for something outside of ourselves and maybe only ever sign satisfaction in something outside of ourselves. And the law it may be given as a way to help us as, we're, as our loves are being transformed by God and his spirit and his goodness. And so I think this bit, the reason people have put themselves on the throne is because of misdirected love. It's, it's such a critical point to make. I think it's, that's a big deal because Jesus himself draws a deliberate correlation between love and worship mm-hmm. when he summarizes the first set of laws in the Ten Commandments as love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The first commandment, which we should probably spend some time talking about, is uh, you shall have no other gods before me. It's a question of worship. It's a question of divine allegiance. Um, what what God are you setting above you as the um, uh, the center of your orbit, of your life, of your loves? Um, John Calvin, since we've gone from John Calvin to Calvin and Hobbes, we might as well get back to John Calvin. He said once, um, uh, no man ever learns to hate his sin until he's learned to love Jesus more. And so there's there's only, freedom is only found, true freedom is only found in loving Jesus, loving the Lord our God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. When we do that, we find that we're delivered from lesser loves, uh, from from fleshly, sinful uh, loves. I think this is the uh, argument Paul makes. You know, when he says, "Should we say the law is bad because it condemns us?" He says, "No, it's, it's actually a good thing." The law. I wouldn't know what coveting was until the law said, do not covet. And so this whole thing of reshaping our affections for what is really good, you know, he says the law was actually used to turn my attention to the Lord. And in in doing that, it's taking me away from a desire to covet and putting my focus on Christ himself. And so there's a great, um, there's another cartoon, Van. You mentioned the the coveting commandment. There's another great cartoon that has Moses. He's holding the ten, the two tablets, you know, he's looking up into the clouds, and it says, you shall not covet blank, question mark, and then he says, aren't we getting oddly specific, God? Um, like, there's this long list at the end about, you shall not covet this, that, and the other, but I think, it, you know, if the Ten Commandments are, like we've said, a uh, kind of a looking glass for us to see the condition of our own hearts, then there's there's nothing overly specific in it. It's an accurate reflection of the kind of person that I'm prone to be, apart from God's deliverance. And I I think it's interesting that the there is a bit of symmetry between the last commandment and the first, in the sense that they're both directed at, in some ways, a very internal reality about someone. So it may be difficult on the outside to tell whether someone has another God before God himself. Right. Um, you know, in, 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 in older times when a lot of our worship was very physical um, in the sense of we would have an idol, it may be a little bit more obvious. Um, but I don't think, I think today those same idolatrous ideas and thoughts are just as present. It's usually something more uh, hard to see like the self um, but it points to this idea that we will be worshiping something at all times and in all places. Right. That there isn't there isn't an absence of worship. We're God, not sort of God presumes human worship. Yeah. Yeah. He just he knows that about well, he created us to be that way. Right. He says you're a worshiping being. Mm-hmm. So you're going to worship. The question is who? Mm-hmm. Um or what, right. Or what, yeah. Maybe more. So um there's a there's almost a little I think in in our modern ears there's a there's a baked in uh, irony to the fact that on the one hand God says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery. Here's a bunch of rules. You know, um, uh, and, and it can, I think, sort of be jarring to modern ears to, to sort of 
you know, how can a bunch of new rules be in contrast to slavery? How is freedom consistent with rules? And, um, and then he goes on, as we were talking about, to say the first rule is, I'm supreme. You know, you should make me supreme in your life. Um, this is, I think, to understand, I think these are rules for navigating our freedom and for staying out of the ditch of future slavery. Mm-hmm. And I think this is what Paul is talking about in Romans 1 when he says, um, you know, the, the big, the beginning of the downfall of the people he describes in Romans 1 is that they did not acknowledge God as God or give him thanks. Um, and, and the result was a complete loss, ultimately, of rationality. Mm-hmm. And a and a headlong rush into self destruction, and and so the point here is f- the preservation of the freedom that God has established and the avoidance of self destructive pursuits. Uh, mm-hmm. I was reading. I was on the plane last night. I've been traveling all week, and uh, I've been reading a collection of essays by the American playwright uh, David Mamet, um, who uh, is a famous guy, not a Christian at all. But he's written this um, series of essays on the question of freedom of speech. And uh, it's really kind of interesting. But he says this, he's Jewish. I, I'm not sure he's an observant Jew. I don't, I don't really know. But um, he says this, that, that totally related, I kind of highlighted it because it totally related to our discussion here. He says, the denial of our human nature leads to a rejection of the rules for its control. So when, in other words, when you deny our proclivities and failings being what they are, then you reject the rules for controlling that. And so in rejecting the rules, you reject the creator of both our, our human purpose mm-hmm. and being and the rules themselves. And he says, but the denial does not eradicate human nature, <laughs> right? It merely proclaims the individual in his wisdom as exempt from it. Idolatry is the conviction of exemption. And so he's saying here that when, when you deny that I, am, that I am the person described in the Ten Commandments, and when you deny that, you know, your fallenness, in other words, and when you deny the purpose for which God created you, you deny him, and you've declared yourself exempt from his leadership, and therefore you've become an idolater. You've made yourself your idol. And so when we were talking about this business of we put the self on the throne. It is a form of idolatry. It is exactly the opposite of what God is suggesting in his wisdom needs to be our first consideration in terms of the Ten Commandments. Yeah, and I think um, modern man has a hard time conceiving of himself as an idol worshiper or as, or as an idolater. Several times in the New Testament, we have New Testament writers saying that greed is idolatry. They'll say, or greed, which is idolatry. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, one final John Calvin quote, I promise. Um, I do not believe you. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 I won't, I won't. Um, but he, he said uh, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. <laughs> um, and he was so right. Cranking them out. And yeah, we're just cranking them out. It's a, our, our hearts are idol factories. We want to worship anything other than the Lord our God. Yeah. We would almost prefer anything to the Lord our God. Um, so when I start by asking, what's your favorite commandment to break? Well, we've each got one, at least one, that, that, we, that inside the embarrassing thing is we'd kind of like to break because we've made something else a God in our lives, maybe even ourselves. Well, and the, the idols that we choose are often... Uh, directed at those loves that God has forbidden. Um, So to your point, Keith, about worship and love sort of going hand in hand, I think the reason that we're so afraid of God's rules, we go, why would I worship God if he's going to give me all these rules? I think that's played into a lie that idols tell us. Idols pretend they have no rules, but they all do. All idols, all gods demand something of their worshipers. And so the, the only good thing is God was very upfront about he, what he required of us, and what he requires of us is actually things that are for our good. Idols always demand something of their 
worshipers. It's just they're going to pretend they can give us something forbidden. So in the sense of greed, it might be, hey, you can have all the money that you want, but you're going to have to sacrifice your family or you're going to have to sacrifice your integrity to get it. You give me these things and I'll give you what you want, what you love. If you think there are no rules in the world outside of God's, you know, being the cosmic killjoy that people sometimes perceive him to be, then you haven't been paying attention to cancel culture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's not only, I would say, Kyle, the other side of that, every God sort of demands something of you. Every God that you place on the throne of your heart is also promising you something. Yes. yes. So every false God, including, um, not, well, I got to be careful how I phrase that. Not only does the Lord our God make us promises in his scripture, every false god that we place upon the throne is also promising you something similar. Because they're trying to pretend to be him, yeah. They, they, and it is this. It is a life of blessing and happiness. Hmm. So the question is, who do you believe? Do you believe that God is going to give you a life of, ha- of blessing and happiness, or and that therefore following these rules is a recipe for that life of blessing and happiness, or do you believe that false god? Well, in one sense, faith, which is obviously central, um, is really just a manifestation of who we think is telling the truth mm-hmm. yeah. about the, the nature of the universe and the world we live in. And I think this is one of the reasons why it's so, why it's so corrosive for us to worship ourselves in particular, because we're trying to make ourselves promises we can't fulfill. And we're going to ask of ourselves things that we're not able to accomplish in a lot of these situations. So, for instance, we'll, we'll have people who are like, listen, if I can just have this particular relationship in my life, that's going to make me happy. And so we make ourselves these promises like, man, if I just try hard enough or, you know, success can be a similar thing. Um, we end up trying to fulfill our own promises to ourselves. And when we do that, we eventually realize we are not able to do so. Um, C.S. Lewis talks about this a lot in several of his works about the idea of um, worship or the idea of chasing after these promises that we make to ourselves ultimately becomes putting ourselves on a pedestal or giving ourselves a responsibility we can't ultimately fulfill that will ultimately let ourselves down if that's how we approach ourselves. Yeah, so there's a there's a book that um, a bunch of us have read and maybe you've heard of, it's called, by, by a guy named Carl Truman, it's called Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, where some of these ideas about uh, the self sort of ascending to the, the peak of uh, culture, cultural authority um, and individual authority on what constitutes a moral or happy life or fulfilling life. Um, he has a, another book called Strange New World, which is sort of a less heady, less academic, more accessible version of the rise and triumph of modern self. So if you're listening and you're interested in in some good reading, I would recommend either of those books. But if you don't have a ton of time, then go for the Strange New World version, which is an excellent, excellent summary of the first uh, rise and triumph of the modern self. Anyhow, one of the things he highlights is how authenticity has become sort of our chief virtue in our culture. So authenticity being defined as generally uh, the thing that I want to do inside or feel like inside is the thing that I ought to do or become, um, and uh, because I I should be authentic, I should be true to oneself, to myself, and so the purpose of life in our day has become um, trying to conform external reality to my internal uh, suspicions or feelings. Right, and so therefore, we have things like gender affirming procedures, or what used to be called uh, sex reassignment surgeries. So that if someone feels, if a man feels like a woman, then well, the goal of of an authentic person would be to conform reality to his internal uh, compass, right? Rather than which is the ancient way of thinking, the classical way of thinking. The goal of life is to conform your inner self to the truth, which is transcendent and outside you. The truth is not ultimately come from within you. It is revealed from outside you. And so a virtuous life is one that conform, has the ability to conform itself to what's real and true outside of it, which is where we get the law of God from. And I think that's where you see the rejection. Um, people 
don't want to hear that there's an absolute truth that we're all held accountable to. And so that's when people start forming their own truth, speaking my truth kind of language. You know, Josh McDowell said one time, you know, for something to be an absolute truth, it needs to be um, created and defined by someone bigger than ourselves and outside of ourselves, and it's true for all people, all times, and all places. Well, the only person that fits that bill is God himself because it holds from the beginning of time to where we sit today, it holds us all accountable to that same truth. Um, and the question is, will you embrace it or will you follow the pattern of what you see in Romans 1 where I'll, I'll create it for myself and and reap the consequences? Mm-hmm. So you know? you'll get to this if you haven't already, but if you read Truman's <clears throat> book, and in particular the last chapter he has, and even the newest one, he has a lot of... Um, suggestions for the church about how to sort of navigate this self is on the throne environment that we live in but he also says we got to own up to our own complicity in this mm-hmm. as as a mm. as an evangelical right <clears throat> community and he calls he calls out uh as one example i mean he doesn't just harp on this he calls out uh the theology that's in our music uh he he suggests that a, a lot of modern music the theology sort of a assumes that God exists primarily to meet our needs. Um and that and and that truth is whatever I feel truth to be. And he calls as he doesn't do this in in this book, but I, I read this in an article he wrote. He calls out this song, you remember the lyric uh that that concludes, You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. Um <laughs> well that's widely sung in many circles, but it can easily be understood as meaning that Jesus isn't objectively true. It's just a. It's what I. It's what I'm inclined to think inside, and so it's true for me. Mm-hmm. We've borrowed you know? that Rousseau sort of yeah. inner self yeah. as the inner compass for truth. Yeah. And so he he has a whole section in the last chapter about it. we really need to check ourselves and look at our theology and think about what we're doing with worship in particular because he emphasizes the importance of a worshiping Christian community as being maybe one of the most powerful things we can do to counter this uh, cultural programming. Uh, But he says we need to sort of own up to the extent to which we bought in, in some ways, in evangelical circles. Yeah, Yeah, we were made for God. God was not made for us. And you can see this kind of show up in the you way don't that have to say it so right out there that way though, Kyle. I <laughs> make me feel better about myself. Kyle. <laughs> but listen, I'm I'm teaching through Romans nine this week, and so I'm very aware that I am not the center of God's universe <laughs> right now. I'm kind of getting that, you know, in my right in my face. But I think we see this idea show up a lot too in the way people talk about. Well, that's not the Jesus that I worship. So you'll bring up something <laughs> yeah. that that the Bible clearly says that Jesus says or that uh, God is required of his people, and you'll, he- and you'll hear that response. They're like, well, the Jesus I worship doesn't do that. Yeah, or my As, God loves everybody just the way they are kind of stuff. Yeah, right. yeah the God yeah. I follow, the yeah. God I know, is like, well, the God you know might be a pine cone. Right. Um, because yeah. the question is not, you know, is this the God yeah. you know, but is the God you know the God of the Bible? Yeah, and it used to be a lot, and, and it kind of comes from both sides, because you get some people who are like, well, my God would never judge a person for X, Y, or Z. But now, because of, I think, especially the, the tendency towards towards cancel culture and towards um, sort of this vindictive form of moralism in our culture, you're now getting a lot of people saying, well, my God would never forgive X, Y, and Z. And so you really do kind of get trapped in this place yeah. where Jesus just becomes a Build-A-Bear. You know, we have sort of this like Lego version of God where we say, That's a good well, I'm going to take all my pieces that I like that really are just about me and sort of make yeah. Jesus agree with whatever I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is to put a counterfeit God in front of Jesus. I think to do it that way. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very much a... Um, so if we could rewrite the first commandment in 21st century parlance, it would probably be something like, Instead of you shall have no other gods before you, it would be something like you shall have no other god but you. Um, <laughs> and uh, so let's talk just a little bit more about how do we put having God as our God into practice. Um, we we've explored, I think, what it looks like in the twenty first century for us to break the law. We set ourselves up as 
in God's place as sort of the center of our life's orbit and ambition, um, the arbiter of truth. But what would it look like? What does it look like when we obey this law and we have no other God but the Lord our God who, who delivered us from bondage? What would be a specific, particular expression of obedience? Well, I'll back up for just one second to verse 2. It's interesting. You know, we ask the question, who's the authority in the world? Is it, is it us or is it God? In verse 2, he says, I am the Lord your God. And so he, it doesn't really matter what you think. It's not God asking if he can be your Lord. It's not like... <laughs> Guys, I'd really like to be the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. I mean, he says— <laughs> I aspire yeah, to that. <laughs> I, I did it, and I am who I am. And so you've got a choice, and I think this answers the question a little bit. So you learned about the knee now and yielding and, and trusting the Lord in this. Or in the end, that person that refuses will be forced to, be, to bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. So— um. I think one of the ways that we put that into practice is get today is learning to to yield and, and trust. He's a good God. He's a loving God that has uh, wants the best for us as He sees it, um, not how it's defined by our flesh. And that's important because what we think is best for ourselves isn't always the best. Um, and so, yeah, uh, I I think I th- I it, you know the the individual circumstances may vary in terms of what is required in your own, you know, circumstance or events in your life to, to really place him on the throne. I, 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 but here's, I think, what it means for everyone. Um, we, as a church and believers and Christians in general, have embraced the idea that the central defining event in all of cosmic history was an act of self-sacrifice and self-negation on the cross. And that has to implicate something about um, what it means to put God on the throne. Um, it, it cannot be the fact, it cannot be the case that um, God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, he died for us. And then conversely, our opportunity is just to live you know, comfortable, self-fulfilled lives on, at his expense. So I, I think that there's, a, there's an element in this of what it means to put God on the throne, which is to be willing to follow him at whatever cost, mm-hmm. heedless of the cost, the personal cost to us in doing that, and without making ourselves and our own benefit the calculus that drives our decision-making. Uh, you know, um, people, you know, greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his brother. I mean, mm-hmm. self-sacrifice is implicit, inherent, infused in the very idea of virtue and our purpose here. And, and I would say the starting point for a life like that um, is the confession, outward and inward, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yes. Mm. Um, it, it is an acknowledgement that it is the person of Jesus Christ, the historical incarnated second person of the Trinity, the Word made flesh, the Son of God, truly God from God, light from light, right, um, who is the Lord himself. The New Testament refers to Jesus as Lord, and every knee shall bow that Jesus, and confess that Jesus is Lord, right? Um, that term Lord in the New Testament is the Old Testament term Yahweh, which we have here at the very beginning in the preface of the Ten Commandments. I am the Yahweh Lord, your Elohim God. Um, we're going to look at Thomas here in a few weeks in our current series um, on Return of the King. Thomas makes this great confession, my Lord and my God. We have my Yahweh and my Elohim. This confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's the starting point of um, placing truly 
the Lord your God on the throne, having no other gods before him. So if I'm hearing you right, you're saying that Jesus isn't just our Savior? He's our Lord, too? <laughs> yeah. yeah, he is the Lord, well, I would say. Yeah. Okay. I, I would say even the, the term—you <laughs> I, I, can't pull those terms apart, really. I mean, the term Christ is a reference to a Savior King. It's the person who comes and does exactly what God did in this passage. The person who delivers is also the person who's now uh, and now is dominion. Uh, those two things go hand in hand. I would say, uh, too, to, to Keith's point, this idea of really training ourselves to say yes to God and no to ourselves. Um, one of my favorite stories from church history is St. Boniface um, was a, a missionary in the Germanic tribes um, during the Middle Ages, and he was, he was made famous for apparently going and finding the biggest, tallest sacred oak tree of the pagan Germanic tribes, and chopping that thing down. He goes out into the woods, chops this tree down, and then uses the wood to build a church on that spot. And I, I think that's, is, that's a boss move right yeah. there. <laughs> so, so, so uh, I, I think in my own life, one of the things I've learned is getting used to going down and chopping those sacred trees in my life down um, is a good exercise. I often have to start with the small trees because I'm not as cool as Boniface. Sometimes it's looking at my life and going, you know what? Like, I'm taking this part of my life too seriously, and I'm not using it to glorify God. That's something easy to remove. I'm going to tear it out at the well, root. And I would say even beyond that, being willing to um, take the axe to the root of a few cultural trees as well. Mm. Like, not just in my own life, but are you willing to tell the truth out loud in public? I think I think it's easy to capitulate to modern man's uh, self-idolatry by— yeah protecting people's feelings and preserve preserve them from the truth. I'm not going to tell you I don't want to I don't want to offend and so, you know, but really all we're doing is we're preserving their inner feelings at the expense of the truth. Mm. And and so, you know, a lot of times we're we're going to find I think throughout the series that there's overlap on these commandments, but that would be a pernicious form of bearing false testimony. So, bearing false witness. So in this book I was reading, I quoted from David Mamet earlier. He tells a story about being out at a public restaurant. You know, he sort of was in Hollywood circles, and it was very pagan. And uh, he was out at a, some restaurant somewhere. And um, Leonard Cohen was there with, he said, two beautiful young women. And he was openly in the, at, at the table uh, saying the Sabbath prayers. It was a Friday evening, and he was kind of conducting a Sabbath um, moment with these two young women. And David Mamet says, oh, it was just a gut punch because I thought, why are you calling attention to the, our Jewishness and our faith and right out there in public? And then he said, then all of a sudden he said, I was convicted by my own cowardice. And I, I thought of this story, Ben, when you were saying sometimes it means whether we're willing to speak the truth out loud about our faith, you know, that is, uh, that's a, a really big deal. And, and I, I would even say, um, at w especially when there's a cost involved. So I've had conversations with a lot of young people, you know, there's been a lot of social upheaval, you know, sort of uh, popular uh, events. I don't say popular, but uh, have attracted the the popular interest events that have attracted the popular interest and people respond to that often by changing their profile picture on Facebook or on Twitter or whatever and they say I'm taking a stand but I've I've had conversations with young people and and just said you know <clears throat> okay you're against racism you put some black square on your Facebook page have you taken a fatherless child home because if you're not doing that kind of thing when you're ready to do that, if you're not serious about fatherlessness and speaking about that issue, then you're not really taking the, the problems of the urban black community seriously. Um, and, and, and what are you doing to help with that besides, you know, posture online with your, with your Facebook page or your Twitter profile or whatever it is? So I think that there, when we talk about living out our commitment regardless of the cost um it's it's not a um i mean the cost is real 
there's a there's a self-denial that that goes with that and an embrace of something that may be materially financially costly emotionally costly uh use up more of your life and time than you ever expected you know i mean there's just things that come from that that are are um are really demarcate the it's kind of the watershed between whether you're all in or whether you're your virtue signaling, I think. Well, you know, the Apostle Paul, we could say it also this way. The Apostle Paul talked about how the law exposes our sin and our need for a Savior. This is Romans, the first part of Romans, you know. The law was given so that we would see that we're sinners and we cannot sort of merit our own salvation or earn our way toward uh, toward salvation or toward heaven. <clears throat> so... um the, the more faithfully that we proclaim to the world, you shall have no other gods before him. The more faithfully we proclaim that and boldly we, pro- we proclaim that truth, the more loving we really are to those people because they must, the world, we all must come to grips with our brokenness and sinfulness in order for us to see our need for a Savior, right? It's not loving to not say the truth. It's not loving for a doctor to protect your inner psyche from the tragic news that you've got heart failure, right? That's not loving of the doctor to not tell you that. Um, the only solution is dealing with the diagnosis that we're, we're broken and in desperate need of. You know, if, and if you think that that's not a costly thing on the doctor, I mean, I've personally, you know, been in situations where the doctor actually had to come in and tell me, I think you only have a few minutes to live. And let me tell you something, that wasn't easy on him. I mean, I'm grateful that he did it, and I'm here to tell the tale, but, um, but I mean, he, all the blood had drained from his face, and he, it was very hard for him to share that. And so there, there is a cost to truth-telling. There was, so there's a really great article, it's hard to read, but there's a great article about a mom whose daughter was, um, sort of tragically caught up in the transgender moment and movement um, and uh, sucked down the black hole that is transgender community and manipulation and coercion. And Anyway, the mom just decided that she was going to go to bat for her daughter. And one of the things she refused to compromise on is she refused to call her daughter by her preferred name, she re- her, her, her male name. She refused to, she, she refused to call Uh, her daughter him, or use her preferred pronouns. She was only going to use language that corresponded with reality to her daughter. And slowly but surely, that pee under the mattress had an undoing, an untying effect on the knot of transgenderism and the lie that that is. And her her daughter is a healing, recovering, uh, beautiful, sweet young woman now. Um, and so I think the truth has the power to dispel the darkness. That's sort of yeah. what the light does. And when, we're, when we refuse to capitulate to the lies, we are doing something about—we're uh, we're, we're placing the Lord on the throne, not only of our hearts, but of our lives, of our families, of our communities, of our cities and countries. When we tell the truth, we are acknowledging that we have no other God before us but the Lord our God. I, I think in that regard, I think— um, we're in a weird cultural moment right now where there's a lot of people who have gone down that very same hole and are essentially uh, standing on the top of a skyscraper threatening to jump. And the, this whole question of even something as simple, seemingly as simple as pronoun use, is really marks the difference between peop- you know, the crowd who is standing at the bottom yelling jump and those of us who are Christian and committed to truth-telling, standing aside and not and, and saying, don't jump, you don't have to jump. Uh, and that's, that's not where the crowd is going, and there's a, there may be a real social cost to mm-hmm. speaking the truth about these kinds of questions. Right. Well, this has been a, a lively discussion. I think it's an important discussion. Um, no one ever sort of gets over having to dwell on whether or not <laughs> we have some other God besides him. Uh, it's, worth, it's worth our constant reflection in our own lives and worth our constant witness within the world um, 
that He alone has the authority to direct our lives and to command us. We have an obligation as His creatures to obey Him. And the only freedom there is to be known in the universe is in submission and obedience to the Lord our God as our Deliverer. There's this really beautiful passage in Isaiah 46 where God is pleading with his people to stop worshiping idols. And uh, in Isaiah 46, uh, really 1 through 7, multiple times he's describing what it looks like to worship these other gods. And he says, you have to carry them around. They're these big, weighty, uh, immense gold and silver idols, and you have to make carts and your your beasts of burden are dragging these along and they're on your shoulders and they're bearing you down. But then he gets to the middle of this passage and he says, You're, if you worship these gods, you will have to carry them. They will be a burden for you. But then halfway through that passage, he says, but I will carry you. I have made you. I will bear. I will carry and I will save. And I think when we recognize how good it is for God to be the one that we worship in him alone, we're going to lose a bunch of burdens, and we're going to be the person who gets to be carried and saved by God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's good. I remember when I was in college, I went to a D-Now weekend for college students in College Station, and so our leader, the house, a bunch of our students were at, a very opening session, he passed around this big can of marbles, and he said, hey, guys, just want you to each take at least one. Take as many as you want. I don't care. That Just take how many marbles you want. And um, so he got to me, and, man, I pulled out this big old marble. I love the color, and I grabbed a few more. And uh, so when it was all, all said and done, he said, all right, now these marbles are going to stay in your hand the entire weekend. If you shower, they're with you. <laughs> You go eat, they're with you, in your hands. We're, I'm checking, and what it was, it was, it was representative of, of the sin we carry around when we don't let go or when we don't submit. And I think this talk about what happens if you ignore God's good commands, uh, what it invites into your life. And, man, I hated that weekend. Because <laughs> I, I had those stupid marbles. I slept. I mean, they were just kind of in the palm of my hand. <laughs> but it was just a vivid reminder of just... This is not the way it's supposed to be. It's always know? important to tra- create weekends for college students that they hate, <laughs> I, I think. Well, it was, it was good, but I hated yeah. the lesson that was learned, just hate and, and welcomed at the same time just because it, it, it made a point. But mm-hmm. So um, Malcolm Muggeridge was uh, maybe one of the most important and famous journalists of the 20th century. He was British. He lived a very carnal life <clears throat> most of his life, but late in life he came to Christ. And it was a no kidding, serious change and transformation. And he wrote in part in reflecting on what that meant is he described his newfound faith in Christ as bringing freedom. And he said it was freedom because uh, it was freedom from, as he's put it, the deep, dark dungeon of the ego. And he, he had come to recognize, I think, the slavery of putting himself on the throne. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, this is, gets back to the irony of God on one hand saying, I brought you out of slavery and here's a bunch of rules. I think in our ears sometimes we're inclined to hearing that as... Um, trading one slavery for another. But I think that the, the challenge is to come to see that as um, for our good. And so that because we will make slaves of ourselves. I, I've buried people I love who had enslaved themselves to their, to their own, become their own king. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you think about this, this is what, this was one of the um, nation of Israel's downfalls, the Hebrew nation coming out of Egypt. They looked back on their time of slavery and they said, it wasn't so bad there. Mm-hmm. Let's go back there. They, they were basically looking for an opportunity to put the shackles back on because they'd forgotten 
um, that they were slaves and they'd forgotten the value and the blessing of freedom. And I think, I think there's a danger of that mm-hmm. as well. Until people really learn that their life apart from God is bondage and slavery and death, um, they, they won't learn to value his deliverance. Yeah, Stephen Curtis Chapman's got a song called Remember the Chains that talks about that very thing. It's, it's good to remember what you've been delivered from. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, next time we'll discuss the second part of this first commandment we could say not making any graven images i look uh and bowing down to them right i look forward to that conversation with you guys this has been a faith and culture conversation a ministry of lake ridge bible church you can join the conversation by emailing us at faithandculture at lakeridge.org. Special thanks to Jeremy Wilkerson for producing.